This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi guys, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Episode 1. My name's Theta. Today we're going to be talking in great detail about Episode 1 of Made in Abyss. We'll also go over a little bit of the format I'm going to use for this season. Then we will do a thorough run-through of each scene, taking note of each of the little details that help move our story forward, and fill out our understanding of this world and the characters in it. There will be nine scenes for today's episode. Finally, we will talk about the various goals and conflicts that are driving the story to this point, character introduction and progression, any elements of world-building, and notable themes that are introduced or explored. Finally, we will talk about what to watch for in the episodes to come and engage in a little mild speculation or interpretation. We'll fill these whiteboards up as we go, so let's go. So the story begins with Rico and Nato descending down into the titular abyss to begin doing some excavating. We get a nice first impression of each of their characters. Rico is excitable and ambitious and sort of full of wonder, whereas Nato seems a little more long-suffering. He's probably quite used to putting up with Rico's personality. We discover that they're out to collect things called relics, and that she, sometime in the past, swiped one called a star compass. She points out that it's supposed to guide the user toward the truth of the abyss, giving us our first clue that the abyss may be quite mysterious. And also that Rico might not be that big on following the rules. They come to a place where they can see across the abyss to this giant gondola system lowering people down into the abyss. They refer to this as the 600 meter group and Rico professes a desire to one day join this group. Now they are dressed in this sort of amusing expedition gear, like they're headed for an African safari or something, but they mention that the area they're going to has already been picked over. So this is clearly not them exploring some unknown area. There's mention of valuations for the day, so clearly some outside authority is assigning value to what they do, and we learn that some of these relics are clearly more valuable than others. I talk briefly about the star compass that Rico has swiped before, and she says it guides its user toward the truth of the abyss. Now mentioning something like the star compass this early on, we know it's gonna come back and be important. We learn these children are red whistles or wear red whistles, implying that whistles and their color denotes something of rank and occupation. The question which immediately comes to mind is, who is sending these children to do this work? Is there some reason it's children? Or these children in particular? A lot of what this show seems to be about is the world of children as distinct from the world of adults. Children have their own little world and their own interpretation of the events going on around them, and they don't have the experience or perspective of the adults to help them make decisions or exercise caution. A first good example of this is the end of the scene, where the two notice that the birds are not chirping and it's otherwise more quiet than normal. Now both adults and the audience will know that this means something is probably amiss, but the children simply think, oh, well this will make our day a little easier. The relationship between these two is pretty well encapsulated in just this clip. They then separate to go to their assigned areas. Now Rico begins excavating in these little caves looking for relics. 
She turns on her headlamp, which emits this strange green glow. They pay a little bit of attention to this. Maybe it has something to do with relics and interacting with them and making them easier to find. Or maybe it's simply showing us that technology works different here than it does in our own world. We see a variety of these relics she finds. They're all different sizes and shapes, and their purpose seems very incomprehensible at first glance. But they're clearly man-made, or at least made with purpose by somebody, suggesting that these originated with some previous civilization. During this excavating, Riku discovers a skeleton. She marks this in prayer so you know this is a burial that was intentional, and she takes a moment to pay her respects. Now she mentions she hasn't seen one in a while, but clearly she's seen them before. Clearly it's not that unusual to run into these graves in these cliffs that they've been excavating. Just like the relics, this suggests some earlier civilization. The same civilization that made the relics? Well, we don't know yet. When we cut to Rico's overflowing backpack, it starts to seem that her goal of getting the highest valuation may actually be in reach, as she has so many relics she's actually going to need help carrying them back. She goes in search of Nato to secure just such help. You get the sense that she's used to relying on him. Rico encounters a creature she calls a Crimson Splitjaw, and this is surprising because apparently they don't normally come up this far. We see that Nato is injured, and the Splitjaw is closing in. It first actually eats his backpack. It's not clear if that's because there's food in his backpack, or because there's relics in there and the creature considers relics to be food, but that's clearly not all it has an appetite for, as it starts to close in on Nato himself. Rico does not hesitate to make herself the focus of the Splitjaw, jumping in as decoy, perhaps before even realizing what she's doing. Having a new target works, and she flees, dropping all of her hard-earned relics in the process. Now, despite falling down into this pit, and at first thinking she might have broken her arm, Rico's actual first thought is of Nato, which tells us just a little more about her. But she has no time or need to worry about him, as the Splitjaw has not given up its pursuit. She seems completely cornered, stuck between a worm and an open space, when suddenly... Laser beams. Now, there are lots of great little things about this encounter. First of all, it's simply the creature design. It's so obviously fantastical, so obviously from another world. The way it both glides and crawls. It's brightly colored, similar to animals in nature that are poisonous. And its presence there gives us a little extra perspective on this world. Rico recognizes what it is, but openly wonders what it's doing up so high. And the audience gets to see, unequivocally, how dangerous this world is. It also gives us a tiny extra mystery or extra conflict because this creature is out of place. Now, whether its presence is the cause of the eerie silence that they noticed earlier, or simply related to that, we don't know yet. But at the very least, something out of the ordinary is going on. What it is? Well, we don't find out this episode, at least. This scene also does great things for helping us understand Rico's character. She doesn't hesitate to put herself in danger for her friend's sake, but she does so in a very reckless manner. She tries to flee while still carrying all the relics that she needs help carrying in the first place, helping remind us that, yes, she's just a child. Thinking things through may not be her forte. Anyway, she then goes to investigate the mysterious beam that saved her from her reckless behavior. Now, Rico traces the laser's path of destruction, remarks with wonder that it cut through the petrified forest, thus telling us that this is a petrified forest. Along the way, she stops and finds a pretty necklace in the middle of the path. Now, considering apparently this area is well picked over, it's probably a safe bet that that necklace dropped there very recently. Now, Rico just thinks it's a pretty trinket, but you and I know it's probably going to be a little more important to that at some point in the future. Now, we get our first look at Reg, and it's clear that he's the one that fired the beam, because he's still holding the smoking gun. Hand. He's smoking. But it actually takes Rico a moment to figure out that he's not human. He's obviously a good enough imitation of a human to fool her at first glance, but the texture of his skin at the very least was enough to give it away. Again, this whole scene kind of underscores Rico's fearlessness and general sort of inquisitiveness. 
she lets her sense of delight override her sense of caution. She is the rush in, think later type of person, but the scene ends with her sobering up a bit, wondering openly where the kid must have come from, and realizing that this is more than just the discovery of a new friend or a new toy. We end the scene with a shot purely for the audience, where we pan up to see the smoking canopy of a tree and a hole in the cliff directly opposite. Did Reg come from that hole? Did he shoot that tree? Was he perched in that tree when he made the shot at the split jaw? Did he fall from that tree and is that why he's knocked out or otherwise unconscious? We don't know yet, but the audience was clearly supposed to see that shot. Next we have this lovely, lovely soundtrack piece that accompanies a montage of Rico and Nato getting our robot friend back to town. Now I love this song immediately. I get a real sense of sort of a fantasy adventure beginning, of long journeys ahead or maybe even behind us, of a very mysterious world quite apart from the one I know, but it's also not upbeat, it's not a call to action kind of song. It's almost mournful or wistful, and the sparseness of the instrumental I think gives the whole thing a little sense of mystery. It's a fantastic soundtrack for giving us our first real look at the City of the Great Pit. As to the montage itself, Nato seems well recovered from his injury, and Rico begs for his help in carrying the robot back to town. Nato sort of begrudgingly, but kind of inevitably, agrees to help her, and it's clear that this new development has taken complete precedence over all the relics that Rico was trying to gather and trying to bring back. The original thing she wanted Nato's help carrying back to town. This helps us, the viewers, sort out exactly how she prioritizes her actual goals. Now needing so much help carrying this and straining under the load once again helps remind us that these are children. They're weak, they're small, they're not equal to every task given to them. One of the sort of defining things of a world of children kind of storytelling is the limitations they face purely by being children. Now there's this moment where they pass underneath this sort of witch-looking sentinel or something, and both of them get very apprehensive looks on their face. But later on, they find an old man with a cart and yet another strange creature, and they have no trouble asking him for a ride. It seems then that it's not adults that make them anxious, but maybe authority figures. They don't try to hide the fact they're carrying an unconscious robot boy from the old man, and it's not clear if this is because the idea of a robot boy is not that unusual in this world, or if the kids just lack caution in general, except as it relates to authority figures that may punish them. Anyway, we get a nice kind of lovely look at the city. It's all piled almost haphazardly up against the cliff that rings the abyss. The houses are mostly brick and cottagey and all clearly show some age. This is not a brand new city. But despite the sort of venerable feel of the whole thing, there's lots of really obvious mechanical works, maybe newer developments, suggesting a city that's a mix of old and new. Finishing our trek through the city, the old man drops them off outside where they live. Mariko and Nato are trying to rack their brain about how to sneak the robot inside. When we meet the third member of our little group, Shigi. He startles them at first, reminding us that they are up to something they might get in trouble for. But then they see that it's just him. Gee, thanks guys. Now the whole fact that the plan to sneak the robot into the orphanage is not even discussed really helps us understand the characters and their mindset. There's no question that they would get in trouble for this, but there's also no question that they're going to do it. This is the sort of secret world of children. Things like a missing person case, or the consequences of carting around an unconscious person, don't occur to children. They just want to have fun, make new friends. To them, the antagonists aren't the authority figures in their life would put a stop to some of this behavior. As children, they don't see that as being protected, they see that as having their fun interrupted, and so they end up wanting to hide their activities from these authority figures. Encapsulating this whole idea as authority as antagonist is director Buzzkill here, who is quite literally standing between them and their goal. Now just the way they've designed this character 
She doesn't need to do anything or even open her mouth for us to know that she is the stern governess type. When authors write about characters who can give looks that curdle milk, they're thinking of characters like her. Now the director standing in the doorway sets up Shiggy to show us his first moment of characterization, and he does so by hatching the plots to get them past her. Specifically, a game of charades with a kid named Kiwi? Ki ki Kiwi? 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 Whatever. Who's an even younger child? Precocious enough to be reading some thick book on the veranda, but not actually old enough to form complete sentences or walk very well. But hey, plan works, they get the robot inside, and the day ends. It's worth mentioning, I think, that neither Shiggy nor Kiwi, Ki Kiwi, we're gonna call him Kiwi, have to be talked into going along with this plan. Children are just natural co-conspirators with each other, especially in the face of a common enemy. This again reinforces our little theme of children versus the authority, secret world of children, this entire story that's happening underneath and separate from the normal day-to-day goings-on of the much larger city. The sun's coming up as we move into our next scene. So I guess the robot just stayed there overnight with no incident. We find Rico amongst a lot of other classmates in this sort of vertical classroom thing while we're introduced to someone named Leader, who seems to be sort of the expedition guide or organizer. Now I think it's interesting to point out that the children refer to these two adults as director and leader with titles, not with names. Calling them by a title helps reiterate that they have some authority over you, that the two of you are not on the same level. Anyway, Leader is giving a bit of a debriefing of the previous day's excavations. We learn that the orphans we're familiar with, at least, are fairly new to this whole thing, and evidently they are a once-a-week, ongoing occurrence. Now, the director requests the floor in such a manner to let us know all our assumptions about her based on her character design were probably right, and you can tell that Leader has put up with her personality before. But he's tolerant of it, and she, perhaps, is the one that has the authority here. Now, the director is here to admonish children not to steal the relics or keep the relics for themselves, and reveals that they're an important source of income for the orphanage. She also reveals that this orphanage apparently belongs to some guild. And the implication with her whole line about your parents who fell nobly is that these are the orphaned children of members of this exploration, excavating guild who died while exploring the abyss or excavating relics, or whatever it is exactly that the guild gets up to. Now, this is kind of messed up. So let me make sure I understand. These children live in this orphanage because their parents were members of a guild that did all these exploring and died in the process. And so you think a good idea is to also send the children down into this abyss? Okay. You know, I don't know who's gonna end up having the moral high ground in this universe, but it seems like it won't be this guild. Suddenly the children's anxiety towards authority figures doesn't seem unusual at all. Now I'm just spitballing here because nothing in the episode actually implies this, but if our director lady has had to watch several of her charges die in the process of doing the very thing that turned them into an orphan in the first place, how long would you have to do that before you stop trying to make new connections to new children? Especially if she has no control over the fact that the children have to do this. I think it would be understandable that you would retreat into being a sort of distant disciplinarian and not a mother figure or anything like that. My speculation aside, it's clear that the leader figure is both authority, but also someone who doesn't make the kids as nervous. Rico definitely lets her guard down around him, almost blabs the whole secret they've been keeping. Leader is also an important figure to Rico's goals, because it seems he is sort of the gatekeeper for her desire to go further down into the abyss. We finally find out where this goal comes from, because she wants to become a white whistle like her mother and go down to the same level she was. She wants to follow in her mother's footsteps. I get the real sense that Leader has given her this hurdle of getting the highest valuation because he knows she won't get it. 
it'll give her a more tangible goal that he knows she won't get, and this way he actually protects her. Because he states if she tries to go down as far as apparently her mother went, it would be all she could do just to extricate herself from that situation. Now, to back up slightly, the whole reason Leader calls her aside after class is to ask her about what happened to Nato the day before. It's clear that Leader didn't know that Rico had intervened to save Nato's life. Moments later, Nato and the gang come in, and the way he makes light of her being the one that saves his life suggests to me that he didn't know it either. But he's smiling for like the first time in the series, so I think he's appreciative but maybe is too cool to show it. But this actually says a tremendous amount about Rico. She didn't take credit for saving his life? It means when she wanted his help carrying the robot back, she didn't bring up the fact that she just saved his life. She didn't need the credit. She didn't need him to feel indebted to her. She didn't try to cash in on her good deed. It's just something she did. It's who she is. This also means Nato didn't help her out of a sense of obligation. It's a very short little exchange here, but we come out of it knowing that these two are really good kids. I think the last thing I want to comment about here, I didn't bring up earlier in the very first scene, but evidently Rico has been punished before by being strung up naked, was mortified of the whole thing, but it comes up again in this scene from the lips of the director. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem like a normal way to punish children. I only bring it up now because there's going to be another oddity in the next scene that perhaps fills in the gaps a little bit about the kind of people running this orphanage. So after the classroom scene, Rico corrals her whole little group into her room, where the robot has apparently been chilling for a full day. She's determined to wake him up, more to the point, she's completely confident that she can. We have this brief moment where we're actually in Reg's point of view, hear his thoughts, see through his eyes, before he is rudely awakened. Giving him this big a jolt is just another example of Rico's recklessness, and while she's also very confident that they can wake him up, it seems their first attempts were to feed him coals or to try to cut him with things. So she's supremely confident without the know-how to back it up. That won't be trouble down the line. The fact of feeding him coals, as ridiculous as it seems, must mean that steam power or something like that exists in this world. Now Reg here, looking around the room and seeing the torture devices basically hanging on the wall, could be forgiven for thinking that the children are his tormentors. Also the fact that they shove coals in him and try to cut him apparently. But the kids actually kind of find this a simple misunderstanding. This just used to be an execution chamber, so this is how it looks. Mariko's always in trouble, so they moved her in here. I mentioned this in the last scene, but like, what's the thought process of the adults here? Stringing her up naked as punishment seems odd, but could potentially be an isolated incident, but you've got like meat hooks and crap and an electric chair just chilling out in this place where children live? Didn't occur to anybody at all to remove this stuff? I mean, are these kids in an abusive situation? I mean, because kids don't know the difference. Kids implicitly trust the authorities put over them, and whatever they know of the world is normal to them. They wouldn't know if the behavior from the adults in their life is appropriate or not. They don't have the context. This is like the dark side of this whole secret world of children. Their experience of the world is so narrow, they're so vulnerable. Okay, sorry, I know I'm getting sidetracked. It may just be that that's the kind of world they live in. Just anytime there's gonna be a situation with children being mistreated or abused, I, I'm gonna get my ire up, so fair warning. Back to the actual scene, when they're all looking, sort of panning up the wall, looking at the devices that made Reg believe they might be torturers, there's a brief moment where you can see a light that's not on, and then you see Shiggy realize something and leave the scene. What he notices is that that light is off. Now the room is actually being illuminated by this green lantern, very similar to the headlamp that Rico was using earlier. It seems then that this might be a technology completely separate from electricity. Now Rico, with her sort of reckless, full steam ahead personality, begins interrogating our robot friend, and we realize that he doesn't know that he's a robot. 
thought. Now maybe he's never known, maybe he's been created very recently, maybe he's suffering amnesia as a result of the shock, as they suggest, or maybe as a result of whatever he did with the hand lasers. He clearly knows what robots are, he just didn't realize he was one. He doesn't know his name, he doesn't know where he is, but the interrogation doesn't get any further because Shiggy, resourceful little lad, has gone and discovered that electricity is out throughout the whole orphanage. Now, they all realize the finger is gonna be pointed at them, thus reinforcing the history of misbehavior this whole little troop has. They try to hide our little robot, and sure enough, Leader comes knocking on Rico's door moments later. He correctly surmises from the getup that Shiggy had something to do with it, so it's clear that Shiggy is not just quick-witted, he is going to be our tinkerer, sort of smart science guy. He clearly already has a history of doing this sort of thing. Now, Reg may not realize he's a robot, but he certainly seems to remember how to be a robot. Or not. There's a fantastic bit of blocking in the way this whole scene is scripted, because Leader knows Rico is responsible for this, but can tell Shiggy is too, and he drags her off, not letting her go, and he's gonna go find Shiggy. This gives a very natural way for our robot friend to suddenly be both awake and alone. So we have this moment of introspection, where he looks at himself in a mirror and sort of wonders about himself and kind of examines himself, and wonders fairly, I would say, why he has a belly button, and then makes another discovery about his anatomy. The thing is, he knows to be embarrassed, but he also knows that there's a disconnect, like why do I need this thing? When Rico busts in moments later and sort of asks him what he was doing, he blushes. He knows that the subject of his unexpected equipment and girls should elicit a sort of bashful response. We of course don't know what he is or where he came from yet, but clearly he's designed to be very much like a human if he is not in fact a form of human or originally was a human or something else. Now he's gonna get a second go with the whole go-go gadget arm thing, and this time, in front of the girl, he nails it. Clearly he just lacks the proper motivation. Then finally Rico does us all a favor and bestows a name upon our robot friend, Reg, and explains it came from a pet dog. Now Reg also knows enough to feel slighted by this, and it also tells him clearly where he stands with Rico. She sees him as kind of a new pet. If you think being friend-zoned is bad, try being dog-zoned. But having stirred up trouble once again, Rico has no choice but to flee with her new pet friend robot guy, leading to our final scene. Rico takes Reg to watch the sunrise up over the city that we learned is named Orth. She may have just dog-zoned him, but this is a very human thing to do. This is how you treat another human being. And that's how she's acting towards him, robot or not. One of the things about children that plays in this whole world of children idea I keep talking about is that they're very accepting. They don't know enough to be suspicious, so they're not. Anyway, she shows him the abyss at the center of everything, and it's hard to tell if Reg recognizes it, has some tinkling of memory, it's hard to tell what he's feeling at all. Now here's sort of a summation of why we've gotten to this point when Rico brings up her theory that Reg came from the abyss. That is to say that he originates from somewhere down below. She says she's never seen anything like him. It's clear she's so curious she's probably seen a lot of things. I think now we get to see at least some of her motivation for keeping Reg a secret from the adults and to herself. She has this goal to go deeper into the abyss, to follow in her mother's footsteps, to unlock the mystery of it, and she realizes that Reg is connected to that mystery. She realizes that he might hold some secret, some understanding, some key to getting to her other goal. Thus, we actually get a new goal, which is unraveling the mystery of Reg. For the moment, this goal aligns with Rico's goals, and so the two will be allies for the immediate future. Rico's suggestion that he originates from the abyss 
also gives us our first callback to the name of the series, Made in Abyss. It seems like maybe it refers specifically to Reg, but I'm gonna go ahead and suggest it might have a much broader meaning entirely. The Abyss is as huge and obvious a symbol as I've seen. It seems likely to me at this point that Made in Abyss refers to maybe all of the characters we've met so far. Every single person has had their life shaped by the Abyss, their proximity to it, their activities in it, the things that have happened to the people in the past. The existence of the Abyss in some way has made them who they are, or made the circumstances which have produced them to this point. Now what all the Abyss may stand for is something we get to have fun exploring through the whole series, because we don't have enough information to guess all the things it may or may not mean, and the ways it has or hasn't influenced events to this point. Now the scene doesn't actually end here, there's a bit of a narration that comes in and gives us a lot of exposition about this little island and about the abyss itself. The beginnings of the settlement here of Orth are at least 1900 years old. The abyss is a kilometer across, but no one knows how far down it goes. The bottom's completely unexplored and mysterious. And for centuries, it has been a lodestone to people who seek adventure, who seek mystery. It refers to the creatures that dwell in there as primeval. The relics are clearly incomprehensible to people. It seems highly likely that some ancient and advanced, but ultimately extinct, civilization once lived in the abyss, made use of the abyss, did work in the abyss, and who knows, we may find some remnant of that civilization has come down to the present day. We'll find out. It's part of the mystery. Orth, then, is really just kind of like a mining boom town that's grown up around it. It's just the mine hasn't run dry. There's still mystery, there's still relics, there's still things to be gained by going into the abyss, despite the danger. I will say, even though I like all this information, I didn't much care for this little narration bit. This whole episode was so fantastic at giving us little details of the world just as it went along. It never stopped and spoke directly to us to give us information. Everything was so show-don't-tell. And then we end it with just this exposition dump. As much as I'm really impressed by this episode, by the series so far, this is a weak way to end your first episode. I feel like the abyss and the circumstances are plenty mysterious enough. I don't need any more focus on that to draw me forward in the story. At this point, I'm more invested in our little characters because they're invested in the mystery of it. Eh, whatever, I'm nitpicking. Thus ends our little scene-by-scene -scene walkthrough. Let me fill in our last board. All right, so now that our walkthrough is over, I wanna talk in broad terms over all the things that have been introduced over the course of this episode and how it's gonna shape things going forward. Now, goals and conflicts are really the two things that sort of move stories. Goals are basically about motivations, whereas conflicts are basically about circumstance. Conflicts often arise out of two different sets of goals that conflict with each other, but not all conflicts come about as a result of someone's specific goal. One of the most basic definitions for a story is someone wants something very badly and is having trouble getting it. That describes most stories, and it breaks down neatly into goals and conflicts. The goal is the thing the person wants, the conflicts are the things that keep them from getting to it. I bring all this up because goals are actually very important to a clear narrative. Characters having goals that the audience knows about gives us a clear sense of progress through the story. And each new chapter will either introduce new goals, meet the goals they've already set, advance them, regress them, or totally alter them. Seeing if and where goalposts move and how close characters get to them is basically how we measure progress in the story. The thing with goals also is sometimes you don't know all the goals. Sometimes you have trouble figuring out what someone's goal is, but just knowing they have a goal helps you understand how the story is moving. It gives you a mystery that you know you'll look forward to having unraveled, and it'll help explain some of the events to that point while you're watching someone's more clear pursuit of goals move the story in one direction. Anyway, we have minor little conflicts and goals uh, throughout this episode. What we have here is going forward, these are basically 
the goals and conflicts as I see them. Riko has her big goal of following in her mother's footsteps. This encompasses the whole goal of joining the 600 meter group, uh, discovering more about the abyss, using the star compass. They're all related to that single goal. All this little group of orphans are probably gonna keep Reg a secret from the authorities. And then Rico and Reg at least, maybe the rest of the gang, but they at least are going to pursue the mystery of Reg's past, where he came from, why he doesn't remember things, who made him if he was made, and ultimately how he's connected to the abyss and the greater mystery surrounding it. Conflicts are all straightforward and they've mostly had elements inside this episode as well. The orphans are sort of at odds with authority figures. The orphans have to do this very dangerous work that they don't totally realize is dangerous. And they may actually be in an abusive kind of situation. We don't totally know yet. We have the conflict of Rico's stolen star compass. It's clear the orphanage would really want that and Rico really wants to use it. We have whatever it was that causes Reg not to remember the fact that he's a robot or anything else about his past or even his name. People don't generally get amnesia out of nowhere. It's likely there is some backstory to that that will cause conflict in the future. And then we have whatever non-specified event happened that caused the split jaw to be up so high that it ran into Nato and Rico. And the same event may or may not be related to the reason Reg showed up in the first place. The characterizations are basically how we see characters now, and it's the kind of thing we can track over the course of a series as well. Good series don't just have goal progression and conflict resolution. What we know about these characters is going to be teased out, and we only know a little bit so far, except about Rico. We have a very good sense of Rico at this point. Very curious, very reckless, but still very kind-hearted. It's hard for me to believe she has a hurtful bone in her body. Any harm she causes is more out of a lack of understanding or a lack of caution. And she's ambitious. She wants to lead. She's infinitely curious about the world. We know a little less about the other characters at this point. Uh, Nato is clearly sort of used to Rico's shenanigans, but is still her friend. He's long-suffering, but he doesn't actually complain that much. He's supportive, he's reliable, but he also is the voice of pragmatism. He'll probably be our kind of a straight man, only sane man in this uh, series. Leader seems actually a lot like Nato, just grown up. I get the sense that he actually cares about these kids, but is somewhat limited in what he can do for them. Plus he still has a job to do. He still has to be seen as an authority figure. The exact nature of his relationship with the orphanage and the guild, we don't know yet. The other two members of the orphans, Shigi and Kiwi. Very little characterization, other than Shiggy seems resourceful, tinkerer. I doubt his curiosity matches Rico's though, so he's not totally that archetype. Our little Kiwi fruit, who knows yet. We'll see how much characterization he even needs. And Reg, who only kind of woke up two thirds of the way through this, doesn't have a ton of characterization just yet. He seems sort of nonplussed by the whole thing, but we know he has emotions because of how he kind of reacted to Rico. He can be a little bit bashful. His sort of self-examination scene suggests he lives more on planet Earth than Rico does, at the least. The director is sort of a stern authoritarian, that's all we really know about her. What we'll do throughout the series is see how the characters change and how the circumstances cause them to grow or aggress or outright shift in the way we see them now. Our role building section, for a series like this where so much is being made from the ground up, like so much of it is not like our reality, I'm not gonna fill this all in. But we did this as it sort of came up, the little things about this world that are different from ours, technology's clearly different, obviously the abyss is different, flying worms, glowing green lanterns, robots with extending hands and other equipment. This isn't our world. It's doing a really good job of teasing out the world building a little bit instead of hitting us over the head with it. So it's gonna be very fun to just kind of see that unwind. This is one of the great things about this kind of imaginative sort of storybook series is it invites you to slowly but surely take little sips of this imaginative world. Finally, we come to theme. These are mostly up to interpretation. These are sort of the fledgling themes as I see them. Themes, unlike conflicts, unlike goals, they don't really get met or defeated or overcome. 
The themes are more like the outlines to a sketch. It gives you an idea of what's important, uh, but rather than changing as the series goes on, it's more like that sketch gets colored in. A little bit here, a little bit there, until finally we can step back and see the completed picture. Theme in fiction is definitely one of the more interpretive, kind of squirrely things. Uh, but it's also the thing that separates imaginative writing from, say, journalism. The real world doesn't have any theme. It's chaotic. It's a mishmash. It's random. Stories have themes. Stories have ideas beyond pure narrative that they want to explore. Good stories explore their themes in such a way that the events that happen, the motivations of characters, the way all those things change, all help serve the purpose of fleshing a theme out. So as I see the themes that we're dealing with right now, um, this whole secret world of children idea I keep harping on, this story is completely told from these children's point of view. They clearly don't have a full understanding of the world they're in. And this will mean that we can focus down on just the tiny little things that concern just them, not necessarily the wider world, except where it intervenes. There is, as I mentioned, sort of a dark side to this though. By not knowing the things they don't know as children, they're vulnerable. They don't know what they don't know, and the audience tends to have a better perspective. So there's a lot of tension to watching them doing things that you know are ill-advised, but you have to watch them do it anyway. But there's a lot of upside to that, and it's related to another theme I think we'll see, which is the ever-loved power of friendship. The strength of bonds that are non-familial, non-romantic. Friendships are certainly going to grow, they're certainly going to be tested throughout the series. I think it'll definitely be a unifying theme to these characters' journey. They're also the theme of the abyss and what it means. We already realize the abyss is a grand mover of fate. It's the whole reason the city exists. It's the whole reason all of the characters we see are in the circumstance they're in. It's also a giant question mark drawing everyone into it. Will characters be able to withstand that allure? Will it destroy them? Will it fulfill them? And because of this, there's really sort of a secondary theme where the abyss is actually gonna be symbolic. Symbolic of what? Let's find out. We don't know yet, but it is set up very clearly to be a symbol with multiple meanings. Finally, we have two more related themes. Uh, one is that simply of history repeating itself. There's a little bit of that touched on in the classroom scene, but also the epilogue that dives into how long people have been exploring this thing, how long people have been dying at its hands, and how they're still there. Almost two millennia later, they're still there. And I think ultimately that and the mystery of the abyss tie into the final theme, which is this idea of searching for a past. Now it's very obvious in the case of Reg, he doesn't know what his past is, the fact of his past allures Rico, and so she's all about figuring it out. But it's definitely not just Reg. These children, as orphans, in a sense, have lost their past also. They've lost the connection to their parents, who normally would have been a huge part of their childhood, and instead are filling it with the relationships with each other and the sort of dangerous tasks they're having to do. Now, I mentioned this during our montage scene here, but that song has a very distinct kind of longing for the past, wistful about the past, curious about the past feel to it. The fact that they're likely sitting on some sort of ancient civilization, still full of mystery, really gives this theme some legs. The city literally exists because people are searching through the past, down through the layers of the abyss, for the secrets and riches it holds. Now, how many levels that theme is played with on this show, we'll just have to see but I suspect we will find that it is a powerful motivating source for a lot of our characters. All right, so that's our board filled out. The last thing I wanna talk about is what we're gonna watch for going forward. Basically the questions we have right now that we still need answers for. There's still a lot about the world we don't quite know, how the city works, any kind of politics, power structures, uh, guild rivalries, crime rates, there's all kinds of things we don't know yet, and they may not be important. We don't yet totally understand the situation with the orphanage, whether it is abusive the way it kind of seems, 
or if it's simply a terrible world and this is actually the best these kids can hope for. We don't really know anyone's backstory except a little bit about Rico. We don't know why leader or director are the way they are or do the things they do. We don't know how the other orphans got there or what their own story is. We don't know anything about what's driving anyone besides Rico and Reg. We don't yet know what was different about the day of the excavation. This caused the split jaw scene that caused Reg to show up, if those two things are related. We don't totally know the whistle color system and what that actually means, what those ranks really mean, um, how many there are, which ones are on top of others. We just know Red's the bottom. And of course, there are an incredible number of things about the Abyss we don't yet know, but that's obviously what the series is about. So we'll just sit back and let that sort of gradually unfurl. And the last thing I wanna do, but just in brief, it's a little mild speculation. It's kind of fun. I suspect that we will find there are people actually living down the abyss. I suspect that there was, in fact, an ancient civilization. I suspect that they have some sort of connection to the present, either some little outpost that is still surviving or sort of lost to time refugees that also live in Orth. I've already voiced this, but I suspect the children are in a slightly abusive sort of situation. And one of the tensions will be us watching them not realize that's the situation. I suspect we'll have a confusion of emotions between our characters. It's fantastic having Rico be maybe the only girl, but the clear leader of our group. But this is all I can hazard a guess at the moment. We don't have a lot of information yet. All right, then that's basically it. This was much longer than a lot of these are gonna be. Um, had a lot of concepts I wanna talk about for the first time as far as how I'm doing this. Uh, and first episodes are simply gonna be longer anyway. There's a lot more new information. Everything's new information. We're firmly in sort of the bewilderment phase for the series right now. Lots and lots of setup, not a whole lot of payoff just yet. Thank you very much for watching me yak at you. For however long I've been yakking at you. Till next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.